bill that was mentioned earlier. I believe that the reason it's so difficult to get full on them is because uh, the net amount of calories that you expend in peeling one crawfish is greater than what you intake with the small amount of meat you get in one. So for every one that you peel, you've got to eat two or three to catch up. It's, uh, it's the ultimate diet food. And so I would encourage all of you who are health conscious to be sure to attend that. We're going to be in John chapter 20 this morning, if you'd like to open your Bibles up there. And I want to begin by reading from the 20th chapter of John, beginning in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. When we think of the apostles, we think of certain descriptions, sometimes even just a single word that almost always go with them. Judas is a traitor. When we think of Peter, we think of the denier. Maybe we think of him as impetuous. Or maybe you think about him after the resurrection, you think of him as the rock who was so central in the early church. When we think of John, we think the disciple whom Jesus loved. And then there's Thomas, or as he's better known to us, Doubting Thomas. You almost can't say his name without saying Doubting first. It's like it's part of his name. First name Doubting, last name Thomas. In 2014, the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life conducted a survey and they discovered that among Roman Catholics, mainline Protestants, and the Orthodox, about three out of ten had doubts about the very existence of God. Among Jews, that number was six out of ten who doubted God's existence. These are 
religious people. They attend church or synagogue, often on a regular basis. Many of them contribute financially to support a ministry, or they support it in other ways. But they have doubts. Sometimes even people who go to church have trouble believing. It seems almost illogical, doesn't it? For people who are religious, people who go to church, to have trouble believing that God exists? The Apostle John would have found that impossible to grasp. If you read through John's Gospel account, you find that he places a great emphasis on belief. In fact, he uses the Greek verb to believe almost twice as much as all three of the other Gospel accounts combined. Just consider a a few examples. You know John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. But then there's verse 18 of that same chapter. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John chapter 7, verse 38 Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John chapter 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And he goes on to say in the next verse, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? John chapter 8, verse 24. Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. To return to John chapter 20, John even writes there that the very reason he wrote this book was for the purpose of creating belief. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you may have life in His name. John knew Jesus. He walked with Him. He lived with Him day in and day out for three years. He heard Him teach. He saw the miracles He performed. He saw Him die. He saw him after God raised him from the dead. John declares that it's faith in the risen Savior that makes us who we are. You cannot be a Christian if you not only don't believe that God exists, but you must also believe that His one and only Son came into the world to die for your sins. And if you don't believe that, John says, then you will die in your sins. Faith is essential if you're going to be a Christian. And that's a point that John hammers home again and again and again throughout his book. But then, then John's gospel is also the only one to tell us anything about Thomas in any sort of detail. 
Thomas was a lot like John. He was an apostle too. He had walked with Jesus and talked with Him and heard Him teach and seen Him perform miracles. He loved Christ. He walked with Him wherever He went. There are a couple of stories John records in more detail that give us a little insight into Thomas. One is in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 7. After this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. The last few times Jesus had been in Judea, the Jewish leaders had tried to seize him and to kill him. So there was good reason why the disciples didn't want to go back there. Lord, Lord are you sure you want to go back? The last time you were there and they tried to stone you. Thomas is the only one to speak up bravely, boldly here. Let us go also that we may die with him. He'd rather die than be disloyal to his master. It's a mark of great devotion that he shows. A few chapters later, chapter 14, verse 1. The last night before his crucifixion, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas is so eager that if Jesus is going away, he wants to go with him. Thomas says, I, I don't know. don't know where he's going, but, but I want to be sure to follow. So what we see in Thomas is a picture of a committed follower of Christ. He loved Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He was willing to suffer, willing even to die for Jesus. He wanted to follow Him everywhere He went. But now he has doubts. He has questions. Questions and doubts are not necessarily bad things. Socrates famously said that the unexamined life is not worth living. And 
in my opinion, the same thing is true of our faith. If our faith is blind, that is where we never question anything, where we never ask why we believe what we believe, where we never investigate it, it has a tendency to be weak. I can think of several examples of people I know who were sheltered from anything that was critical, who were encouraged to never ask any sort of questions. Well, that's just what we believe. We've always believed it. Don't worry about it. Don't ask anything more about it. And then when a point came in their lives when they couldn't be sheltered anymore and they started to see views that were critical of their own, it hit them like a rock. They were shaken down to their core. It not only created doubt, it created insurmountable doubt. They fell away and never recovered. You see, too many times I worry that we only believe because someone else believed. That our faith is only an inherited faith. It's not really ours. It's not personal. It's okay to have an inherited faith insofar as that goes. The younger that we are in our own faith, the more that we're going to rely on somebody else. But if we don't grow into having a personal faith, if we don't take ownership of it, if it doesn't become our faith, well, then it can end up being unreliable. So we all need to endeavor to come to the point where our belief is not our parents, or our husbands, or our wives, or the preacher's faith, or, or whoever it is that we're relying on, where it's our belief, our faith. We need to be firmly grounded in what it is we really, truly believe and why. Now, that's not to say that in shaping our beliefs that we don't rely on the faith and the testimony of others. You know, I've heard some people say who doubt God's existence, well, if God would just reveal, if he'd show himself to everybody, you know, peer up in the sky or something like that, well, then everybody believe. Why doesn't he do that? Well, God has revealed himself. And my faith is grounded in the testimony of others. It's built upon the words of Scripture, that's the witness of the apostles and other early Christians, among others, faithful people of God. My faith is built upon the faith of other great preachers and teachers of yesteryear. It's built on the faith of my parents. It's built on the faith and example of other great godly men and women I've known. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 that our relationship with God is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Our faith is built upon the experience and the testimony of other people. That's where we get the, the building blocks for our own personal faith. But the problem with Thomas is he just wanted to skip over all of that. Thomas didn't even want to consider the testimony, the evidence of his friends. If you read this story in John chapter 20 and get the impression that Jesus is chiding Thomas here, I think you're exactly right. Because Thomas is being unreasonable. He's confronted here with 
the universal testimony of his closest friends and associates, men that he's lived with day in and day out for three years. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Bartholomew, Matthew, they all say the same thing. They all declare in verse 25, we have seen the Lord. They're excited. They're convinced of what they've seen. But Thomas rejects all of that. And we probably all remember his initial response, the the first few words there, unless I can see for myself the wounds, unless I can reach my finger into the prints of the nails and into his side. What does he say? Unless I can do that, I will not believe. The ESV I read a few moments ago is even more emphatic. I will never believe. Not, I have my doubts. Not, I'm having trouble accepting it. Not shock, you're kidding, you saw that. No, I'm not going to believe. I'll never believe it. That's a dangerous way to deal with God. Doubt is one thing. But telling God, dictating to God, What you will and you will not accept is evidence is another thing altogether. Telling him to come down and to settle things on your own terms doesn't end well. If you were in our Bible class this morning, we saw that with Job. That's exactly what he tried to do with God, and it did not end well for him. And so Jesus chides Thomas for his attitude. Put your finger here. See my hands, put out your hand, place it at my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. But if Thomas is being so unreasonable, why would Jesus even bother to appear here? Why would he even bother to offer Thomas this opportunity to see his wounds for himself? Why does he give in to Thomas's demand? I think here it's helpful, again, to consider the whole context of the story. Why would Thomas make the demand that he did? He's so unbending, so unequivocal in what he wants here. He's rigid, he's adamant. Unless I can see for myself, I will never believe. Remember, it had only been a week since Jesus died on the cross. John tells us that on that day of the resurrection, the apostles were all meeting together in secret because they were afraid. Matthew's gospel tells us that there was a rumor circulating that his disciples had stolen away the body. Maybe they were afraid that they were going to be called to account for that alleged crime. Thomas wasn't there. Why? Perhaps he was too afraid to even go and meet with the other disciples. Or maybe Thomas, who had been so devoted to Christ, who wanted to follow him wherever he went, who was willing to even follow him into Judea, though it might mean death, maybe he was so dejected that he didn't know how to cope with all of this. He adored Jesus to the point that he said he was willing to go and to die with him, but but now Jesus had been betrayed. He'd been handed over to the Jews who'd mocked him 
put him on an illegal trial. They'd given him to the Romans who had beaten him, tormented him, and ultimately put him to death in the most humiliating and excruciating way imaginable. And all that time, he and his friends had to watch that helpless, powerless, nothing they could do. I don't think Thomas was out running an errand or on vacation or visiting a sick relative or anything like that. I think Thomas didn't want to be around his friends because he was bewildered, confused, dejected, maybe even angry about everything that had happened. So you see, Thomas isn't being belligerent towards God. Thomas is not trying to be unreasonable. He's just in such a state that he can't bear the thought of accepting anything less than his own eyes and his own touch as evidence. And so Jesus shows him mercy. He gives him what he needs right then and there. And he helps Thomas move beyond an intellectual faith to a personal faith in him. And it's such an overwhelming experience that Thomas falls to his knees and he cries out, My Lord and my God. That's about as far from doubting as you can get. In fact, that's as strong a statement of faith as we find anywhere in John's Gospel. Think about this. I don't know if you've considered this. This is, this is a Jew, a monotheist, one who in the midst of a, a pagan world, believes that there's only one God, the one true God of Israel. And here he confesses, my Lord and my God, he equates Jesus directly with God. At that point, he truly believed. He'd truly been transformed. So you see, when we think of Thomas only as doubting Thomas, to forever brand him as a doubter is just as unfair as it would be to only think of Peter as the one who denied Jesus instead of also thinking of him as that great preacher of Pentecost. They were both faithful disciples before the Lord's crucifixion. And they both, we know from Scripture in Peter's case, and we know from tradition in Thomas's case, as far as we know, they both were faithful disciples after the Lord's resurrection. Thomas is here doubting Thomas no more. Josh McDowell is a name some of you might have heard of. He's a well-known Christian apologist. He set out when he was a young man to try to disprove the case for Christ. And as a result of his investigation, he actually became a convicted believer. He wrote a book called The Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And in that book, he says, My heart cannot rejoice in what my mind rejects. I think we see something of that in Thomas. And I think maybe at times we all can identify with that to some extent. We have doubts. We want to know things for ourselves. And maybe there are times when no one else's word is good enough. 
Is that a lack of faith? I don't think so. Thomas certainly didn't lack faith in who Jesus was. Whose faith is greater? The one who never doubts at all because they're never critical of their faith in any way. They never investigate. They never ask questions for themselves. Or the one who doubts and investigates but then moves beyond that to belief that's sure and certain and convicted. So when we have our doubts, let's think about doubting Thomas. And let's remember that he was so much more than a doubter. He was one who loved the Lord with all of his heart. Maybe his doubts were even born of that. His sadness, his uncertainty. Thomas was beat up by life. No, can't we identify with that? A lot of the times that we come to doubt is when we don't understand why things are happening to us. So Thomas was someone who needed to search for the truth. But when he found it, he embraced it wholeheartedly, fully, completely, with everything that was in him. We can trust others. But let's all be interested in searching for ourselves. In that sense, Thomas is actually someone for us to admire, to emulate. And let us, above all, be like Thomas in his single-minded dedication and devotion to Christ, in his desire to really know for himself the risen Lord. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you've never come to know the risen Lord for yourself. He invites you, like Thomas, to come and to have belief in Him this morning. Put your trust in Him. Repent. Turn to, from yourself and your life of sin. Turn to God. Be buried with the Lord in baptism. Have your sins washed away. Embark on that new life as a believer in Jesus. Or if you're here this morning and you already are a Christian, maybe something stands in the way of that life that He offers. If there are any changes that you need to make in your life this morning, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.